Well, hello, Timberline family. It's wonderful to be with you again. This weekend is what we call a standalone message. That means we're not in a series, we're between series. So that means I get to choose. So I've been working on that. And over the last months and years, actually, a couple of years, I've been impressed to think about a particular thing. I've, that old word, ponder, I like that word. I've been pondering this. And I wanna to speak to the idea of the pieces of life that I don't understand, that I don't get, or that I get angry about, like unresolved suffering. How about that? Things that call out the reflex question in me, which is why? That's the basic human question. It's built in, it's, it's about discovery, it's about looking for a reason. I ask it when I'm three years old, or when I'm 93, I assume, the Easter events, what we've just experienced over the last few weeks, are the perfect scenario to explore suffering. Might we find some pointers in looking in? I think we do. So I think the Easter time, before, during, and after, is a metaphor for life. What must Jesus' apprentices, his disciples, have felt? Those spring days of when they were approaching Jerusalem, their anticipation, Lazarus been raised from the dead day after day there in Jerusalem. And boy, it's knocked down drag out in that week before Easter. <laughs> Jesus is going at it with the, his critics. He's turning over tables. Miracles are happening other places. Truths are taught. It's sort of like uh, maybe Elitch Gardens and Water Park you know, <laughs> in old Jerusalem. It's, these are rides. You're up, you're down, you're sideways, you're over, you're under. And in all of that, the center point of that weekend apart from the resurrection itself, is Golgotha, where Jesus is crucified, Calvary. And here stand his apprentices. Actually, they had run away, most of them. Their friend and leader is pinioned on a Roman cross. So here we are two weeks after Easter, and um, they have to have PTSD. They have to be in shock. I wonder what it'd be like to be with them as they walked around with Jesus those two weeks after. And one of them says, you know, I'm, I'm really ashamed to say it, but I ran away. But John stayed close and he said he's never seen or heard anything as heart-wrenching as what happened there on the cross. Now, I've not known much physical suffering. A couple of surgeries, broken arm, broken foot, stuff like that. Some emotional suffering, some mental, some spiritual, but nothing compared to the rest of the world. I mean, nothing compared to Syria or to parts of Africa or to Latin America or the really challenging places in our own country. But, but like you, I know the feel of suffering. How do we deal with that? How do I deal with that and find life beyond it? In the next 20 minutes or so, I want you to meet a few friends who have some thoughts on the subject. Here are two. The year is 1866. Civil War has just ended the year before. And it's July, end of July. Thomas Obadiah Chisholm is born in a log cabin in Kentucky. A few months later on Christmas Eve, Annie Johnson Flint is born in New Jersey. They went on through their lives 
to write. They wrote poems and songs in the midst of stuff. I'll circle back to that later. We know the questions of life, don't we? Who am I? Why am I here? What's next? But the big one that speaks to all those is, is there a God? I mean, like other than myself, because <laughs> my tendency is to, uh, is to make myself God and then fall down and worship me. But that question is, is there a God? A.W. Tozer, a preacher of yesteryear, wrote this, and um, I've shared it here before. I've shared it quite a bit, as a matter of fact, in the last year or two. This was his statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. A.W. Tozer. If there is a God, what is that God like? Is he, is he good? Does that God have my best in mind? Well, when you read this, the Old Testament shouts it. The Lord is a God, it says in, in Exodus, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That God is also willing to challenge, correct, punish in some instances. That's what love does. New Testament puts flesh on that truth. This is how it reads. Here's the statement. This would be point one in your notes if you're taking them. In Jesus, God the Father loves us. And when you read John's first chapter, it's lyrical language. It like soars. Listen to how it reads. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on later in that chapter to say, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Paul, years later, actually earlier than, than what the Gospel of John was written, Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, And being found in appearance as a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He heard his father, that root word for obey, all the way to the cross. We, we pick it up again with John, and probably if not the most quoted, one of the most quoted verses in all of scripture and time. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. On our journey to eternal life, however, we have pain and suffering in this one. There have been thousands of books, articles, movies on suffering. And now and again, there's a song about suffering. Let me come back to Annie Johnson Flint, who was born in Vineland, New Jersey, and was orphaned at the age of six. So she's born in 1866, orphaned at the age of six. And when she's a teenager, she finds out she has rheumatoid arthritis, which becomes the dominant force in her physical emotional life, if you will, all of the rest of her years. She was uh, bedridden on occasions when she was able to get out. She would be strapped into a chair, wheelchair bound. And some years later, she found out that she could write like greeting cards and, and little pieces of prose and poetry 
And one time she wrote this. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater, sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he added his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. And it sounds like this when you put the melody to it. This is the refrain. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Goes on to say, when we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit, etc. on and on. I love the song. God's love is not romance. This is not a mushy, sloppy kind of thing. This is concrete. This is boots on the ground. This is tangible. My favorite definition of love, which many of you have heard me share before, got from a friend of mine, Tex Groff, who's now with the Lord. Love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's needs. Love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's needs. One of the biggest things, if that's true, and I believe it is, is that love is willing to bear another's burdens. That's what love does. It's not just about me. It looks out there. The focus is there with you. Galatians 6.2 says it this way, carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you'll fulfill the law of Christ. When that happens, when you start carrying another person's burdens, sharing them, if you will, you run head on into two things, pain and suffering. When I look back at the Easter time that we framed early on, I, I really don't identify with so much around Easter. I don't identify with Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I've never seen that, never experienced that. I don't identify with lots of the revelationary things that he says. I appreciate it and I've learned to believe it or the wisdom or miracles left, right and center or challenges by powerful leaders or the oppressive injustice that was just replete in those weeks. Of all the events around the death and resurrection of Jesus, this is where I come to grips with what I identify with. Mark 15th chapter reads this way. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Later on in that chapter in Mark, it says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land till three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me? That one brutal moment in the dark takes my breath away. I mean, he's been judged unjustly. He's been beaten senseless, flogged till his ribs show through his back, if you will. And they lay him down, put him on a cross, pound the nails in, drop him into that hole and his life is seeping away. 
there in those last moments in the dark, suffocating, he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's where I connect with him in the pain. That's what I know as a human being. I don't know resurrection yet. I don't know a lot of the things that happen. But he loves his father and love tells the truth. So on the cross in his last earthly moments before the resurrection, he tells the truth about what he thinks, feels, and knows. Many of you have heard me talk this way before, but there are three levels, I think, of telling the truth. One is, this is what I think, this is what I feel, this is what I know. And in that first statement, or in that first part of the statement, when he says, why have you forsaken me? That's him crying out in, this is what I think, and certainly this is what I feel. We'll catch the other part in just a couple of minutes. It's interesting because 18 hours ago in the night in this garden called Gethsemane, he had that same kind of moment where he's praying and sweating as it were great drops of blood, it says. And he says, Papa, Abba, that's what that word means. Papa, if there's any way, take this cup from me. Let's not go down this road. This is both paraphrased. Uh, it's a feeling statement. It's true feelings, but it's a feeling statement. But then he backs it up with what he knows. Nevertheless, what I know is I can trust you. Not my will, but yours be done. This is, this is a spontaneous cry from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But these words are not unknown previously to Jesus. This is the first sentence of Psalm 22, the Psalm of David. You can read Psalm 22. It's almost a template over which you can lay the events of the crucifixion because there are other pieces in there that fit. David, the songwriter, like Annie Johnson Flint, put his feelings in this thing called a psalm in Psalm 22, when things weren't going the way that he had planned. But it was the plan, the cross had to happen for us to have any hope of freedom, any hope of the eternal, for you and I to be here this day right now. That had to happen. I really, um, I really like what Tim Keller said about this. He said, why then did Jesus have to die? Even Jesus asked that question in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked if there was any other way. There wasn't. There isn't. On the cross in agony, he cried out the question, why? Why has he been forsaken? Why was it all necessary? The answer of the Bible is for us. He is the one who loves us so much that he ultimately bears our burdens, the burdens that would separate us from him. It's even said this way by the writer of Hebrews under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He took my burden on himself. I then get to respond. We call that coming to Jesus. We call that committing our lives to him. We call that receiving salvation. I can control that outcome. When he, when he does what he does for me, I get to respond and receive his grace. I control that. But pieces of that even then are in his court. Um, as, I, as I walk through my life, Things happen that I don't understand, and certainly I don't agree with. I don't want it. 
And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12th chapter, he has one of those moments. He says, I've got this affliction. He calls it a thorn in his flesh. This is how he responded. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, my, my challenge is this. When I carry someone else's burdens, I really want to fix it. I mean, I want to control the outcome. That's my challenge when someone I love suffers. But scriptures don't allow me that luxury. Scriptures call me in the, in the pastoral epistles, Timothy, Titus, to self-control. There are two parts that I have. I've got self-control and then I have beyond my control. And the beyond my control, that's on God. In Washington, D.C., years ago when I first met, I sat with the chaplain of the United States Senate, Richard Halverson, and we were talking about encouraging people to follow Jesus. And uh, I asked him about that. And I said, how do you approach that? And he said, well, I want that person to follow Jesus, but I can't make that person follow Jesus. I said, but that's your purpose. He said, no, no, no. That's my life, to lead and encourage people toward Jesus. And I said, but what if that person never chooses to follow Jesus? And he simply responded, sitting in the Senate dining room, that's not my responsibility, Dick. I'm responsible for inputs, not outcomes. So, if invited, we are responsible for inputs, not outcomes, in situations where someone we care for, someone that we love, might be a, a dear friend or a family member or a spouse or anyone. We are responsible for inputs, not outcomes. And, you know, we can offer thoughts, ideas, or advice, but mostly I think when we're hurting and somebody's trying to help us, mostly what we want is their availability. We want their presence. We want their prayer, that touch, that talking to God on my behalf. What do, what do I do with those things that are causing great suffering for the one I love? I mean, think about it. A brain injury from birth or auto crash or war or some condition not of their making like that. Sometimes choices. We make choices that get us in situations that damage us, that shatter our mental capacity. They sap our emotional and spiritual strength. I mean, in, in a time today when the real pandemic is loneliness and anxiousness for a whole generation, more than a generation, addictions have some by the throat. And when that happened, it, it, it just whipsaws personality. And, and I can't do something about that except be present and talk to God. I have to confess, I had a time when I shouted at God when um, my father had some great challenges in his life and I couldn't change it. I couldn't do something about it. And I can remember weeping into my pillow at night and some of us have screamed at God. <laughs> I'm so grateful he doesn't scream back. He can handle my screams. He can handle me pounding the pillow or the walls at night. 
He can handle whatever I bring him. But what can we do? That's the key question. I have a friend who, right here at Timberline Church, we held a memorial service for him some months back. His name was Tom Patterson. He was a brilliant man, a scientist. He had been vice president of major corporations or charge of management development in major corporations, I think like Grumman Northrup, and he was with Disney for a while and all of that. He developed a whole process called life planning and strat ops for companies. I met him here in Fort Collins just a couple of years after I came. So this would have been about 2010. And we sat and talked. I knew a bit of his story. At that time, he was in his late 80s. And um, he had had his two wives had died uh, before I met him. And he was married a, a third time to a wonderful lady. And they had early on, he and his first wife, I think, had four children. And I think it was the first one who died at the age of 12 from cancer. They adopted three others, so he had seven children. But of the seven, four of them died before Tom did. Two of them to disease and two of them to uh, auto accident and a plane crash. And I looked at him and said, Tom, how do you handle that? How do you handle that suffering? And his eyes welled up and he looked at me very gently. And he simply said, surrender. Surrender. Suffering calls for surrender. It's not giving up, but it's giving over. Suffering calls for surrender. It's not giving up, but giving over. Luke records the cross experience this way. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. There is no exact word in the original of the New Testament for surrender. The closest there is to it is the idea of committing, to entrust, to hand responsibility over. Ruth um, reads a variety of devotionals. And a couple of years back, she was reading Streams in the Desert, written by the Cowans, who were missionaries to Japan. And at the start of one of those devotionals, it said, on occasion, we need to remind God of his full responsibility. On occasion, we need to remind God of his full responsibility. Oh, I know he knows. But in reminding him, we are reminding ourselves. So what shape does surrender take? I've talked with a bunch of people over the years, people I trust who have been through the things I'm describing or are in the things I'm describing right now. Even this week, I chatted with some, and these are some thoughts from them. 
These are not platitudes. These are not false thoughts. These are just one-liners, if you will, as we had conversation. Some of them are broad. Some of them are more particular. I'm just going to say them. They'll be on the screen. We live in a broken world. Count on a safe landing, not smooth sailing. Pain makes us focus. When you focus, focus on Jesus, not the pain. I want to elaborate that just a moment. Have a friend who's a hand surgeon who said sometimes some of these surgeries are quite painful. And, and if the patient focuses there, they don't, it's hurt, they hurt, so they don't use it. And if you don't use it, it atrophies and you lose the use of the entire hand because you focus on the pain. Jesus in our pain, like he focused on the Father, he calls us to focus on him. Next thought is wait. And I heard that, I said, really? And then the next one's worse. Be patient, patient. If you have time to read the first chapter of James, just those first verses, count it all joy when you fall into trials. And the verb that's used there is the same verb that's used in the story of the Good Samaritan, where the man was walking down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it said he fell among thieves. And James says it this way, count it all joy when that happens. And I say, really, with things that would take my life, take my stuff, take my joy and my presence, be patient. Next, keep believing for that frozen thing, that thing you, you've seen it so long, it's just like it's frozen in place. Wait for that frozen thing to begin to thaw. There is that space as winter edges into spring that brings new hope. I don't need to understand, but I do need to believe that God does. I don't need to understand. I'd like to, but I need to believe that God does. Know that we are loved and our loved one is loved. Our greatest challenge in times of pain and suffering is fear, especially when it's with someone else and it's going on. And my friend said, stare it down. Stare down fear. I love that old saying that says, when fear knocks on the door and faith answers, it finds no one there. And this one's not on the screen, but there is a very real sense in which pain and suffering is my teacher. It teaches me things, even other people's pain, if I help to bear it, teaches me things. When we suffer, and bear another suffering. Finally, we need friends to stand with us. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with who said just the presence of people in my space, in my, in my arena when I'm going through things. It, it's very little about words and almost always about presence. So let me wrap up. As a young boy in bed at night in Oakland, California, I'm in the fifth grade in the dark and I used to sing. I, I think my methodology was sing to keep the stuff away. Well, here's a song for a dark night. Let me come back to the fellow who wrote it. Thomas Obadiah Chisholm of Kentucky, born 1866. 
was severely challenged in health his entire life. And he lived till I think 94, actually. He moved to New Jersey where our other songwriter, Annie, had been born. And when he was 57 years old, he wrote this song. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There's no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. And the refrain, many of us are familiar with it. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thy own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousands beside. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. As we wrap up our time this weekend, those of you friends, wherever you are watching this, I'd like to put something out there. I have friends who are in desperate places today. I can't change it. I can't, I just went through all that, right? What I can do is pray and believe and be faithful and present. If you have someone in your world like that, you may be absolutely frustrated because you've prayed 10 years and nothing has changed in your understanding. But if you'd like to stand in proxy for that person, that means in the place of that person, it says Jesus took my place. He stood in my place, took the hit for me. But if you would like to stand and believe still for that person, you may have prayed for them forever, it feels like. I'd like you to stand with me now. I'm gonna stand for my friends and let me pray. Let's pray. Father, here we are. We have to tell you, we don't understand, but we understand this that you are a good God, that you went out of your way to love us, to find us in the silliest, saddest places, hiding behind our successes and our guilts, and you tagged us and said, you're it, and I believe you mean it. And you've walked us through some dark valleys ourselves. But in this moment, we stand for that person, that family, that we love dearly. And one more time say, we stand on their behalf. Lord Jesus Christ, hear our prayer. We know you are answering. We just don't always see it clearly because you love them more than we do. Thank you for letting us be a part of your grand plan, your grand economy to help us, to let us bear one another's burdens. We are grateful this day, and we stand on tiptoe to see what it is you want to do next. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a terrific week in Him.